Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Now, today's guest is a Carla woman, one of Ireland's finest journalists and broadcasters. It's a pleasure to welcome Olivia O'Leary. And Olivia, presenting today, tonight, primetime Newsnight on BBC, it was a far cry for the young girl from County Carlow. What are your memories of growing up in Boris? Well, I had a wonderful childhood um, growing up because, number one, growing up in a village is brilliant. Everybody knows you, they know your family. You never get lost in a village. Um, but our lives were centred around the river, uh, the River Barrow, because we're in the Barrow Valley. And for me, growing up, I would wait all winter long for the summertime, because that's when you could go swimming in the barrow. And, you know, you'd even practice your swimming strokes on the carpet at home <laughs> to make sure that when the time came, you know, you'd be doing the right thing. Um, but um, I learned to swim in the river, which, of course, meant that I have a doggy paddle sort of very comfortable stroke. And back then, the notion of a swimming pool, I mean... That was beyond our ken. I can remember the excitement when they built one in Bagnestown and my father was the first member, I'll tell you that. Mm. And we were all brought over. But before that, we learned to swim in the river, the river barrow and the little tributaries that went into the river. And you learned in the little mountain stream, which of course was cold as hell. I don't know how my mother stood it. And then as you got a little more uh, confident, you'd be allowed to swim under the stone bridge down on the barrow at Bonahown and come out into the big river, which, of course, in comparison with the mountain river, was warm. And there was great excitement. And there'd be somebody always, you know, with you. There was a rite of passage about moving out from the mountain river into the main river. And the river was where we did everything. It was, it was where we spent the whole summer learning to dive. And there were particular river dives, you know, it wasn't like at a swimming pool. You had the run and jump dive where you ran along the, the bank and then you took off because the bank was a good three or four foot above the actual surface of the water. And I never perfected that. My brothers did. But I just did the little dive, you know, about <laughs> a foot over the river. But my sister, Mary, she was so cool. She was the eldest. And she'd been taught to swim by my uncle, who was a school's champion uh, in swimming. So she had the real cool racing dive. And she had this wonderful uh, Australian crawl. And I fancied doing that something rotten, but I was very jealous of her. I never, I never got to be that good. It's an idyllic image of growing up. What, what were the winters like? Well, the winters weren't too bad because we, were, we had Boris House Domain uh, beside us, uh, which was full of, you know, uh, trees and nuts in the autumn. We'd go gathering the nuts uh, in the domain. Um, and, and that was all there for us. And I remember even taking picnics in February up to the golf links in Boris. And there was a little sort of natural pond beyond the eighth green which froze over in the winter time, and we'd go up there. You were never in danger because it wasn't very deep, yeah. um, but that was as near as we got to skating, and then we'd always have a picnic at the side of that, even in the cold. <laughs> um, but it was 
it was it was brilliant. But that thing about swimming ran through the family. My dad, who was the local baker, was a terrific swimmer. And when he'd come home from selling cakes and bread and whatever in the evening time in the summer, he'd come in and it might even have been raining and he'd say, have you been for a swim? And we'd say, no, Dad, sure, it's raining. And he'd say, it's a summer's day and you haven't been for a swim yet. And we'd be piled into the back of the bakery van and brought down to Bonahoun to the river and we'd all swim as it started to get dark, which was sort of really exciting. But he got Parkinson's disease when he was 49. And for a man who was as physically strong and agile as he was, you know, Mm -hmm. it was a pretty rough... Um, hand of cards to be dealt but the thing that most Parkinson's disease people who suffer from Parkinson's disease find is that the river holds them up they have a freedom in water that they don't have on the land and my father continued to swim right up to the point that he, he couldn't get out of bed and I remember my mother telling me that one morning they went down to swim in Tlashgani which is a beauty spot very near us and there was a dredger on the barrow line, you know, dredging the, the, the sand out of the water. So they couldn't get past. And my father had a Zimmer frame. And the fellas could see that this was really bad news for him. So they said, listen, if you want to sit into the bucket, you know, <laughs> on the dredger, sure, we'll swing you out over the river and land you on the other side. And just as my mother was about to say, absolutely not, my father was already sitting in to the, the, the bucket and they swung him out over the river and landed him on the bank on the other side. And my mother nearly lost her life, but not at all. He was grand. It's a great, it's a great image. Had his yeah. swim. Yeah. Ah, yeah. He was, he, was, he was great, you know, he never let it get him down and anything he could do to keep going, keep doing the things he'd always done, he, he'd always do that. I, I admired that so much about him. Yeah, fantastic. But, but when, when you talk about eventually emerging to, to swim in the barrow itself, I mean, there's a fair old flow on the barrow. Not in the summertime. Right. Um, you know, unless it's been a very, very wet summer. Uh, usually in the summer, the flow in the river stills to very, very little. But you always had rules for river swimming. You never swam without somebody else with you. And you always swam upriver, just in case there was a bit of a current that day and you got pulled down further than where you could come in very easily. And I still do that. The minute I get into the water, I, I swim upriver and I let, let the current bring me back down. I mean, there's a joy about the, 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 the current as well. And the other thing, of course, is that we would always, nearly always swim where there was a weir so that you had nice deep water on this side of the, of yes. the weir and you could swim across to the weir and you could sit on the weir and you could sort of spread eagle yourself against the moss on the white water going down. And it was like a sort of a down-home jacuzzi. It was just brilliant. And I still do that. And most of the places where there are weirs, now the councils put lifeguards at, at any known swimming place. Yeah. There will be a lifeguard, which is, which is absolutely, you know, brilliant. Were you a keen reader as a youngster? Yeah, I was. I was, I was one of those kids who'd sneak off with a book And my mother was a great believer in letting kids dream. She said, you have to give kids dreaming time because they don't develop their imaginations otherwise. So she, on a summer's day, she'd say, go and get your book off, you know, down the domain, down to the river. And um, she didn't believe in children having, you know, organised lives with timetables where everybody had to be at a certain place. Um, 
And as a result, yeah, I, 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 I read everything there was. And in those days, there, there weren't books for teenagers. You know, you had your kids' books, like mm -hmm. The Wind and the Willows, which was our Bible, because it was all about the river. Um, but after that, you were fairly quickly reading um, all the James Bond books. And I learned an awful lot about the facts of life, I can tell you, <laughs> from Ian Fleming and reading the James Bond books and going to my sister and saying things to her like, Mary, do men have anything to do with having babies? And she immediately shut down. She said, go and ask your mother. <laughs> so... All right, yes. then. Well, your first musical piece reminds you of all those happy days, particularly by the river. It, yeah, it's the McGarrigal sisters uh, singing the swimming song. And this is the anthem in our family. Everybody sings this song. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. So when you left to go to Dublin, was that a dramatic change for you? Yeah, it, it was. And I went to university. I was barely... 17 and I'd been to the local boarding school in Carlo, which was a great school, St. Leo's. And, um, but going to Dublin, like you didn't hardly know how to take the bus. You know, you were a culchy. And in those days, those of us who were culchies, we, we didn't go near Dublin very much, mostly because we didn't like it. Um, and you didn't have any freedom as far as I was concerned there. So I arrived up and these would have been the days when UCD was in Earlsford Terrace. Mm -hmm. And I was staying in Loretto Hall on the green, which was absolutely brilliant. It meant that I couldn't get lost too much. You were 500 metres away, take yeah. Me, yeah, yeah. But it did take me about a year to get used to being in the city. Um, I was very young from that point of view. And... Um, and I had a great time. I had much too great a time, uh, uh, as it happened. Um, I, uh, I, I learned all about drink. My poor father would send me what he could afford as my pocket money. And I was on a scholarship, you know, so I was very, yeah. very lucky to be there at all. Um, and the, the money he sent was supposed to be, as he put it, he said, now that's for um, going to the pictures once a week and a pair of silk stockings. And I didn't like to tell him that nobody had worn silk stockings for about 30 years. Um, but in fact, most of the money used to be spent on gin and tonics uh, across the road in, you know, wherever it was. Yeah. And, um, uh, and the gin and tonic, mind you, the gin and tonic would last all night um, because you didn't it have money to. for a second yeah. one. Yeah, it had to, yeah. And, and did you go straight into journalism then, Olivia? I did. I did a sort of a basic arts degree and my mother knew the editor of the local paper, you know, that's Ireland. And uh, he, he, she gave him a ring and I was called to see Mr. Bergen. It was a very formal interview. Uh, he lived half the week in Dorky and half the week in Carlo. And um, anyway, on the basis of the fact that I think he was probably half in love with my mother, <laughs> he took me on for six months and I stayed there. For, for three years. In those days, young men would always get taken on by the daily papers before young women were. Yeah. And there was usually a sort of a pattern that if you were taken on as a young woman, you were expected to do the social page and the gossip page and that sort of stuff. So I was lucky in that I did an interview for RTE just at the time, around 72, 71 to 72, when Nell McCafferty and Mary Marr and uh, Ivan Boland and um, Mary Kenny had all been on The Late Late Show. 
saying, you know, there are such things as rights for women, guys, and pointing out that RTE had very few women fronting current affairs programmes or very few women's voices doing serious current affairs. So when I did my interview, you know, they were smarting a little bit from having been criticised. So probably, you know, those women battered down the barricades for me. Well, well, there's no question, but you were one of the trailblazers. And we'll come to, and obviously that was very different from your times in, in provincial newspaper. But your editor, because he, he was my editor as well for a while, Mr Bergen, he, he was an extraordinary yeah. man by provincial newspaper standards, wasn't he? He was. He was very much a man of the world. And he, he was very proud of the design of his paper. And we used to win the British newspaper's design awards year after year after year. But he had been ill as a young man and he had lung problems, um, as many people did in those days. So he was sent um, during the winters very often to Spain or Italy or Switzerland or wherever would be good for his lungs. And in the process of that, you know, developed a big interest in foreign affairs and would write a leader every week about something that was happening um, in Spain. He loved Spain. Yeah. but also in, in France or in Italy. And that was terrific at a time when Ireland was a pretty insular sort of place. Um, and my, one of my big jobs was to read Mr Bergen's leader for any clerical errors or whatever in the, in the galley proofs yeah. because I spoke a little bit of French and a little bit of Spanish. So I would be allowed to um, uh, look at his galley proof to make sure there were no mistakes in it. Yeah, well... well when you, when you progressed from there then and did become, I, mean, I know you're in the Irish Times, but did become that frontline presenter in RTE, it was an extraordinary time in Irish politics, wasn't it? It was the troubles in the north, you had Charlie Hoy getting the leadership of Fianna Fáil, the purges, the Gareth Fitzgerald versus... It was really interesting times, wasn't it? It was a fascinating time and the biggest story was Northern Ireland, which wasn't for us just an Irish story, it was an international story. So... Uh, if you were working on the Northern Ireland story, you were meeting journalists from all over the world and you were being asked to do broadcasts for America, Canada, whoever. So it meant that a whole generation of Irish journalists, or maybe two generations, cut their teeth on what was a big international story. Um, from that point of view, you know, we, we benefited. But the, as an Irish person, waking up every morning to the latest toll of the dead was really, you know, heartbreaking. And the only comparison I can make with it, Des, is now um, listening every day to the toll of the dead that have been taken by this coronavirus. Mm. But the, the brutality that you lived with and reported on, um, it did have its effect. And um, for us, no more than anybody living in Northern Ireland, all you wanted to, to, to do was for it to stop. And the day that it stopped... I can remember the sense of joy. And, OK, younger people were delighted as well, but people of my generation who, uh, who thought it wouldn't ever end mm -hmm. um, were absolutely overjoyed. And, um, and then I remember in 96 when the truce broke down and there was the bombing in, in London, the sense of despair that this had happened. And again, the elation, you know, uh, when the... Um, when, when the, the, the long-term truce came mm -hmm. and the, what we thought would never happen, you know, little by little, um, the, the bombing on both sides stopping. 
and both sides accepting that they were better off uh, not killing. And then the rest of us having to accept the price of that. I mean, it was an extraordinary story, but you still remember the day, I remember the day I went down to report on the killing of um, people called MacDonald and it was in East Belfast and they had been killed in this case by Protestant paramilitaries. As you know, it was just as bad, if not worse, mm -hmm. on the other side. Um, and when the neighbours ran in after they heard the shooting, um, they found uh, Mrs. MacDonald lying on the floor, bleeding to death, and her husband in the kitchen, shot dead. And a little boy in a playpen, looking out and crying as he watched his mother on the floor, and a little baby beside him in the playpen. And, you know, I remember wondering, whatever happened to those kids? And was there anything that any of us could have done that would not have made them orphans? Mm. And there were so many other children like that. All Jean McConville's children suffered, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was desperate, and that pain will go on down generations on both sides. Indeed, but interestingly, your second choice of music recalls a night of celebration, probably when things had, had improved in the Anglo-Irish relations, and, and Calora, which took place at the Royal Albert Hall in London in 2014 on the occasion of President Michael D. Higgins' historic state visit to the UK. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. The whole thing about that night was that it was the culmination of a real new stage in better British-Irish relations. And, and, and I always believed that until you had a better relationship between the two governments and between the two nations, you couldn't have long-term peace in Northern Ireland. That was a necessary foundation stone. And that night was an attempt, I suppose, to have symbols of what we had in common, the British and the Irish. Um, and Tom Moore, of course, who had been, you know, uh, a, a, a poet and, and a songwriter and a singer, a composer, um, had been a really important part of British life um, in the um, early 19th century, late 18th century, early 19th century. He'd been a friend of Shelley and he'd been a friend of Byron. And his songs are sung as much in Britain as they are in Ireland. So when that song, um, uh, The Minstrel Boy, was sung, uh, it was a song we all knew from school. It was a song that the British knew as well as we did. And um, it, as well as being a symbol of something that we shared with the British, it had something extra for me because, you know, I was standing in the wings as Emer finished her song. And then from both sides onto the stage marched two army bands, one from the Irish Army and one from the British Army, the Irish Guards with the pipers leading the way, upping the tempo and playing the minstrel boy. And, you know, for anybody sitting in the audience, and I met so many, met so many of them afterwards, and for me in the wings, I mean, you just, your heart leaped. It was absolutely wonderful. You know, the two armies in a way being the symbol of the state, as well as, you know, Michael D. Egan sitting up there. Um, and for me too, there was the extra fact that it was a song 
that my husband used to sing with me at the piano. And people who knew Paul as an economist, you know, wouldn't have seen that side of him. But he had a very nice, light tenor voice. He only ever sang with me on our own. I'd play the <laughs> piano. <laughs> and he would sing the Vale of Avoca, which he loved because he used to ride his horse down in, 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 in the Vale of Avoca. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the Minstrel Boy. And it was just something that was special for us that we had together. And Paul had died six years earlier. So when this song came on, I mean... You know, there wasn't a dry eye in the audience and certainly I was the same sitting in the wings. Um, it was just the most extraordinary emotional moment, that moment when the armies came on. Olivia, going back to when I was a young, whatever, I was trainee journalist or student journalist and, and used to watch your interviews and you were so uncompromising, <laughs> I always felt. You were, you were, you were my favourite. You were so tough, I thought, uh, much tougher than any of the men. H how... Was it, given that you were the first female taking on all of these male journalists on television in Ireland, how did they react to that? Well, the first people that I worked with who were the News at 1.30 crew, as it was known then, news features, we used to do the Happest One News and the This Week programme on Sunday. They were all brilliant. Um, and were they, they all, were all men? Really, they were all men, yeah, yeah. And at the time I was probably... Uh, one of the few, if not the only woman doing serious current affairs and, and, and interviewing. They were all men and they were very supportive. And I remember once they told me, I was only there about four months, they said, you're interviewing Jack Lynch today. And I said, you're not serious, you know, Jack Lynch. And they said, yes. And in I went and interviewed Jack Lynch. And he was talking about various things, including the whole question of divorce being illegal in this country. And he said, but of course, he said, you know, um, the all party committee uh, have had a look at that. And, you know, there are ways we can move forward. Now, I didn't know anything about the all party committee. I should have known, but I didn't. And at least I had the noose to say uh, the all party committee, uh, Mr. Lynch. And he very kindly said, yes, the all party <laughs> committee on the Constitution, which met and which suggested that we did have to look again, perhaps at the divorce. Pro pro prohibition in the Constitution. And I could see all the guys outside with their heads in their hands. How could she not know about the all-party committee? Um, but, you know, I'd come from the Carlo Nationalist and probably wasn't quite as au fait as I should have been with particulars of politics in Dublin. And um, I remember uh, Lynch was being brought off afterwards and he was always brought downstairs by Kevin Healy, who came from Cork. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lynch, who was a very nice man, um, said, Oh, Larry, oh, Larry, does she come from Cork? He said to Kevin. <laughs> she would have And Kevin knew, he knew he should give the right answer. And he, he said, um, oh, originally, Peter, yes, originally. <laughs> and our family, probably 300 years ago, came from Ivalera in Cork. Yeah. So that was grand then. I was all set with Lynch if I had come originally from Cork. And what about some of the others? What was Hawhey like to interview? Hawhey, he thought he could charm you. And I resisted his charm mightily. I didn't have much trouble. Um, but he would always arrive early for an interview. I mean, it was, it was a rotten little trick and he would play it all the time. And God knows we should have known it. But he would arrive about half an hour before he was due. And, uh, you know, you'd be in your dressing room desperately mm. pulling on your, your, your interview suit and the knock would come, he's there, you better come down now. And I remember coming down, dragging a comb through the hair, no makeup, whatever. And he would love that. He'd already be sitting there, all ready to go. And you'd come in 
all, you know, in a tizzy. Yeah. Um, but I remember interviewing him uh, uh, once and we were chatting beforehand. And he said to me, um, how is she? He'd say, he'd always ask after your children. And, uh, and then he'd say, Emma, isn't it? No, Emily. And of course, you'd always be disarmed about somebody who remembered your child's yeah. name. Um, and I said, ah, listen, she's grand, she's grand. And he said, well, how does she feel about you working on television and stuff? And I said, well, she'll watch me. And at this stage, Emma was about two and a half, maybe. And then she'd go over to the television and she'd say, hello, mom, hello, mommy, you know. And then as I wouldn't answer, she'd get more and more frustrated. <laughs> and eventually she'd start to hit the television screen with her fists. Yeah. And Charlie said, mm, yeah, yeah, there are many of us who react to you on television like that. <laughs> <laughs> Good he did have fairness. a sense of humour. Yeah. 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 Um, and we mentioned there that not by choice, but you were a trailblazer for, for female journalists and all journalists. But were you conscious because, of that? Because other, because other people had prepared the way. You know, I, I, I was awfully lucky at the time that I came in and I know that those first women libbers, women's libbers who came in and said, where are the female faces on television? Where are the voices on the radio? Like, they, they blazed the trail, really. And, and is it now in a good place, the gender balance in journalism, in your view? It's in a reasonable place, but... We still have the unanswered question of who looks after the children, you know. We have laws and we have all sorts of um, recognitions publicly of the women's rights, equal rights, economically equal rights at work. But there's this attitude of, but we won't talk about children, like that's all home stuff, you know. Uh, mm. We won't go near that at all. What happens inside the front door has not been looked at. Now, you can have men and women sitting down and working out their own arrangement. But if, for instance, employers are not ready to allow for proper paternity leave, if they're not ready to allow for family-friendly work practices, it is very difficult for women to be as available for promotional possibilities, for travel, whatever, um, if they're always the ones carrying 80 percent of, of, of home duties. Mm. And you can say until the cows come home, sure, isn't that a private thing that every woman and man should work out for themselves? And yeah, they can. But if a man then finds that his employer is saying, actually, no, I'm not going to allow you to take paternity leave or I'm not going to give you family-friendly hours, naturally he'll come home and say, well, listen, I'm really sorry, but they're not letting me do it. And I know more and more fathers who want to be at home with their children and who are overjoyed at the new relationship that men now can have with their children. But as long as the workplace in particular is not family friendly, there will always be a difficulty about women being able to use their full potential to take their full place. Mm -hmm. And it's not a matter of neglecting children, it's a matter of the, 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 the whole world, the private world as well as the public world, recognising that there has to be a family friendly arrangement. I mean, look at the present crisis that we're in because health workers, a lot of whom are female if they're nurses, can't find mm -hmm. childcare at home. Now, I know there are all sorts of extra difficulties here, but would you not have thought that would be one of the first things that the government and the Public Health Committee would have thought about in terms of making sure that health workers were available? 
But somehow or another, that's Asher, shove that under the carpet. There'll be women who'll deal with it. Let them work it out themselves. Leave them off. Let them work it out themselves. This is a question that has to be faced by the whole of society. Okay. Well, look at. I get you, off my. No, I get off my soapbox. No, now. you've well, you were invited to to address that issue. So, and I'm and I'm glad you have done. Your final choice of music, Olivia Leary, is, is a special piece. Yeah, I, I'm in a choir, and um, I joined the choir. I used to be in a choir when I was younger. When I was married, I wasn't in a choir because it was another evening or maybe two evenings a week when I was missing. So after my husband died, I, it was one of the things that I did, maybe to fill up evenings, you know. Anyway, I love singing and I'm in the um, Colwick Choir and we have done quite a number of requiems and, you know, the church music that's written for choirs is, 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 is wonderful, whether it's Bach's B minor mass or whether it's the Mozart requiem. We did the Foray requiem and we did... Um, various other uh, requiems, including the great Mozart requiem. But one of the more recent ones we did was the Brahms German requiem. And sometimes when you have to work really hard at a piece, it's, it becomes a favourite piece. And one of the reasons we had to work hard at this was that most of us did not speak German and we had to learn the German pronunciation um, uh, because the thing is written in German. And uh, the reason that I particularly wanted this is that I'm very conscious at the moment of people who have lost loved ones and they haven't been able to have funerals. And, you know, there have been some deaths in my own family, uh, uh, not my immediate family, that have meant that people have not been able to have the funeral. And we in Ireland do funerals very well. We celebrate people's lives. We have the public celebration of the life and everybody gathering for that and gathering to comfort the family. And the family feel that their, their loved one has been you know, sent away with ceremony and with dignity and with public recognition. And all of that is denied to families who've lost uh, relations during this particular pandemic. And I, I feel for them, and I've spoken to so many of them, and they really miss those rights. You know, rights are important, liturgy mm -hmm. is important, and they've been denied that. So I wanted you to play the opening chorus from the Brahms um, German Requiem, and the opening chorus, and I had to learn this. It was very hard to learn because I didn't really speak much German. The opening chorus is called Selig sind die da leid tragen. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, that's a beautiful way to finish. Olivia Leary, we could talk for hours. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.